So all I'm talking about is like these great giants of the faith who found these really non-public, like they weren't flashy about it, these really humble connections to church. Why? Because they had a, a, a previous passionate commitment to Jesus, which made them want to stay connected to the people of Jesus. Welcome to the Wellspring Soul Care Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Gotthard, part of the Wellspring team. At Wellspring and Soul Care, our desire is to walk with pastors, leaders, and others and help them serve God and others from a well-tended inner life. Of course, we all know we live in such unique and challenging times, both inside the church and without. We find in the cultural landscape all kinds of political divisions, but those happen inside the church too. And we're also facing, many of us, this term, this reality that many call deconstruction or trying to make sense of our faith and navigating what is the place of the church, what is healthy church, how does it actually look to lead and follow God in a healthy way that actually models the way of Jesus, not just cultural scripts that we've inherited. And to help us make sense of that, we've had a conversation today with Todd Hunter. Todd is the founding bishop of the Churches for the Sake of Others, a diocese within the Anglican Communion. He's also the founder of the Center for Formation, Justice, and Peace, past president of Alpha USA, and former national director for the Association of Vineyard Churches. But we're here to talk about his latest book, What Jesus Intended, and it's rescuing faith from the rubble of bad religion. So we have a, an honest and I think helpful conversation about what it means to, to listen to others well, to point them to Jesus, but also to help us make sense of and navigate the times in which we live and be able to walk with others in a way that honors Jesus and honors and loves them too. Enjoy the conversation. Todd, thank you so much for taking time today. I know you have a very full and busy schedule, but thank you for taking time to to sit with us today and to talk about your latest book, which is obviously pretty timely and relevant for not only the church, but our culture as a whole. Um, can I ask, and maybe it's an obvious question, but I'll just jump in with it. What prompted you to write this book? Why did you feel a sense of like, yeah, this is something I need to write or want to write at this time? Yeah. Hi, Richard. Good to see you again, too. You, I just think you and I have this very odd relationship. I see you every time I write a book. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Un- unfortunately, <laughs> we, we can keep that rhythm. That's fine. <laughs> unfortunately, our paths don't cross very often, but it's always great to be with you and the, and the Wellspring audience. Yeah, so the book is called What Jesus Intended, and the subtitle is Finding True Faith in the Rubble of Bad Religion. And, you know, since I was very young, um, I think part of it was being converted in the Jesus movement when the Jesus movement, if your listeners don't know what that is, of course there was a movie just out called that. So the, a lot of your listeners may have seen that, but right. you know, I'm thinking of like Chuck Smith and Calvary chapel, especially, you know, I'm from Orange County, California. And so that whole thing was breaking out when I was in high school and, um, and you know, to have something to have church be so cool 
was like weird to me because I grew up in this very kind of stodgy, you know, as a kid, you know, stodgy, boring United Methodist Church. You know, I didn't want anything to do with church. And then down the road is this place where thousands and thousands of teenagers are in line to get in. And we're on the cover of Time magazine and all that. So I think without knowing it, something got plugged into my heart there. And then later in the 70s, when um, I was working with John Wimber and he was my mentor and John at that time was still at, at Fuller Seminary in the church growth department, I think I've just always had this passionate fascination about the intersection of gospel and church and culture. Hmm. Now, I've also hmm. been a pastor and an overseer of pastors my whole life, and I'm 68. So, you know, I, it's going on, believe it or not, uh, 50 years that I've been doing this. And it's just undoubted that there has been a, a drift away from what I would call kind of childlike, humble, but grounded faith in Jesus, God, Christianity, the church. Mm. And then, as you know, we were just talking before we went on air that I just saw today a new article in the Associated Press, you know, talking about all these studies that talk about the rising number of those who on surveys call themselves nuns. Right. Um, That is of no religion at all. So I really wrote this book to try to gain a fresh hearing for Jesus amongst Mm. the church hurt, the nuns, the duns, the skeptics, um, thinking that what if what if I could help people not judge Jesus through the lens of their church experience, but come to understand the church through a fresh hearing of Jesus? I love that. And I love that rather than either defend, if you will, uh, the church per se, Mm -hmm. and and that so much pervades the book is just in each chapter, it's asking the honest questions and, and those come uh, out of live real life conversations you've had or are continue to have with people. Uh, But it returns every time to Jesus, to the person, Mm -hmm. to the example, to the work of Jesus. Um, I mean, in, in a sense, I, I would say it seems like the answer and not, not to be uh, tried about this, but it seems like your answer ultimately is keep looking to Jesus, keep coming back to Jesus. Yeah. Is that accurate? Yes. But as you say, I hope, I hope not in a trite way. Like I mean that in a, like a biblical narrative sort of way. So if the biblical story is at all true, that there is a Trinitarian God who existed before anything else. So before we ever read the sentence, let there be light, there was a God who's a trinity of beings who had intentionality behind that creation. And then, you know, you know, the rest of the story, you go from that to the fall, flood, uh, you know, the Tower of Babel, the calling of Abraham and the creation of Israel. When, God specifically says, I'm going to create a people for myself and I'm going to bless them and protect them and watch over them. But for a very specific reason, that is you're to be my agents of rescue on the earth. You're to bless the whole earth. And then again, we know the rest of the story from patriarchs to judges, to kings, to prophets, to John the Baptist. And then Jesus explodes on the scene as the fulfillment of this story, the beginning of the end. And it's as if God is saying, you know what I had in mind in the garden for Adam and Eve? Look at Jesus. You know what I had in mind with Abraham and the creation of Israel? 
Jesus is Israel and God as God intended. And I would say Jesus is the church as God intended. So as you see, Richard, that like far from sort of being a trite, you know, like, hey, look at Jesus, as if you're hiding the church behind your back or that history. I mean, think of all the ups and downs that are told in the Bible about that history. Good kings, good judges, bad prophets, good prophets. I mean, one thing about the Bible is it doesn't hide its, you know, warts. No, it doesn't. Um, So I'm not saying in that cheesy sort of way, like, oh, I'm hiding the church behind my back, but holding up a little Jesus doll and saying, oh, uh, please just look at Jesus. Rather, I'm making a really big claim that Jesus really is the central figure of history. Yeah, and in fact, you you spent a chapter on that that kind of the idea, not kind of, but the the reality that many churches, perhaps many followers, or or those who are entertaining following Jesus, maybe uh, if you will, lost the plot, or maybe never knew yeah. the plot yeah. that Jesus is this fulfillment of the the not just uh, the not only the story of Scripture, which is the story of humanity, is the story of um, of all of us, but that but specifically intentionally so, and that it's been pointing to them all along, right? Is that, that's what I hear you saying. Yeah. Something came to me in the writing of the book, Richard, that I, that was really important to me. And I hope it will be for our listeners today and those who read the book that I think if we're honest, there's a simultaneity we need to name. Mm-hmm. And other, here's what I mean. If like right now it's one twelve PM central time as we're talking, so just imagine the global clock, you know, the globe with the time zones around it. Right. So at some point somewhere, it's one o'clock in the morning and somewhere else it's five in the morning and somewhere else it's nine o'clock at night. Well, if I think there's like 2.7 billion Christians in the world today, now spread them out over the globe in your imagination, spread them out through all the time zones. And I would bet everything I have in my life that right this second at 1.13 Central Time in America, there are hundreds of thousands of acts of kindness, generosity, goodness, and healing being done in the name of Jesus. I guarantee it. Here's the problem, Richard. You can't say that to the 14-year-old who just got molested by her youth pastor. It's not the answer to her pain or to her question or his pain or his question. It's it, there's this horrible simultaneity. Yeah. And it throws us off. It's very disconcerting. And we have a t- we I think we sometimes we have the tension to break that simultaneity, but I don't think we can. I just think it's real and it's always been real even amongst Jesus's first friends. Mm-hmm. Right? Think about it. Jesus had 12 first friends, let's call them. And at least four of them had significant problems that we know of, right? (laughs) Judas betrays him. Peter denies him. James and John, as Jesus is passing through Samaria, and the Samaritans don't welcome him enough in their minds, they want to call down fire from heaven. Right. I mean, that's talk about abuse of power, right? (laughs) Right. You're kidding. (laughs) Let's kill him. Yeah, and the text says that Jesus turned and rebuked them. So a full third of Jesus' first best friends— had problems enough that if you wanted to, you could say, I don't know if I want to be in this group because I don't want to be complicit Mm. with James and John. Mm. And that's what's making a lot of people leave the church today is a fear of complicity. And of course I get Mm. it. Who of us wants to be complicit with bad stuff? I would just want to say that the lens of complicity 
uh, is not complex or nuanced enough to really make these sorts of judgments. Because where are you going to go? You, could, you might say, well, I'm going to stop being Lutheran. Well, okay, but you're still a Protestant. You could say, well, I'm going to stop being a Protestant. I'm going to be a Catholic. Okay, well, you're still in the universal church, right? There, I mean, there's right. no place to run and hide from the universal church. I think what we can do is like name this simultaneity and all of us to the best of our ability say, I want to be in the hundreds of thousands who are doing the good. I, I don't want to be a part of the abusers, the harassers, the um, those who inflict pain on others for their own selfishness, etc. So that choice is available to us. But I don't think we have, I don't think that running from the church actually accomplishes anything other than, I mean, well, I should say to be very careful. If somebody's being abused in the church, they ought to get out of there. But I just mean in that sort of, gosh, I, you know, you know, the church, this or that, or these scandals that happen, and I just want to leave. I mean, I get it. I, I say in this book, and I mean it, I wrote this book out of deep compassion and empathy for people who are in this place. I'm just saying, I think there's a way to process this instinct we have to flee church, and the way to process it is in and through the person of Jesus. So, Todd, you know, I hear this a lot from people, and probably a lot of our hearers do too, which is, oh, yeah, I love Jesus. You know, I, I, what I find in him in the Gospels is compelling, and I even I want to follow him. Mm-hmm. I just don't need a church to do so, or I don't, yeah. I don't want to be part of a church to do so. And I know you respond to that in various ways in the church, mm-hmm. uh, sorry, in your book. Could, could you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, you know, church is such a slippery term because, like you said, you use that term for some people— and they immediately think of a big institution. Right. Or others might think of a building on the corner of Fifth and Main. Right. Um, others, if they're in China, might think of a home group. You mm-hmm. know, so you just, the word gets used in, in so many different ways. I think what I would want to do is bring us back to the notion of a people, mm-hmm. which then again brings us back to Genesis 12, 1 through 3, where God says, I'm creating a people. And then in the New Testament, the Greek word is ekklesia, the called out ones. Mm -hmm. And so what I would want to say is, I totally understand your beef with the church construed the way you're construing it in your mind. But again, what if we could shift and say God has always been trying to make a people and his sort of final effort in that, his fullest and finest effort is through Jesus who consistently said, come follow me. And, and in so doing was creating communities and, and then a larger community. And if you look at the rest of the New Testament, Acts and, and mostly Paul's letters, you see that the early apostles went around creating these groups of the called out ones. So not Lutherans or Anglicans or Methodists or Baptists. They were... They were um, you know, pejoratively called Christians because they are following mm-hmm. Jesus. So they were sometimes known as the people of the way. So actually, you know what? It was, Richard, it was more like a movement in Jesus's day. Mm-hmm. It was this people movement. Now they were organizing themselves into churches. And we know from the pastoral epistles that Paul tries to help them understand how to do that. Right. But, but the basic sort of heart vibe and the basic social psychological dynamic was we're this movement of people who's following Jesus. 
some in Ephesus, some in Colossae, other, you know, et cetera. So that's what I would try to get people to think back to that movement and how can you find a healthy group of people? And it might just be a house church if that's all you can do right now mm-hmm. um, to find the best you can, a healthy tr- place that wants to follow Jesus and, you know, invest yourself there. Yeah, that's really helpful. You know, it seems it's evident throughout the book because you start really each chapter uh, talk with these stories of people. And these are obviously names change and so on. But mm-hmm. you've you've had it seems like dozens, probably hundreds of conversations with people that are struggling with various, whether it's trauma, church hurt, the problem of evil on and on. Uh, One, how do you, I don't want to say find yourself in these conversations. Mm -hmm. What it seems like you, you put yourself in, in places to have conversations like that with people. What, what, what draws you to that? Yeah. Well, I, I said a bit when we started, what draws me to it is, um, what feels like massive curiosity, but I hope I'm also drawn by love, by um, concern for the other. Um, But I've been just blessed and fortunate. Um, Like some of the stories I tell in the book are because I did focus groups. I called Mm. people together who were nuns and duns and skeptics and said, please tell me your story. Wow. Um, And then uh, I was president of Alpha USA for four or five years. And you know, the Alpha Course is built on a question. You know, we tend to think that the Alpha Course is built on these, um, now it just went out of my head, I think 15 talks. And of course, the talks are central. But the talks, in a sense, are a diving board to this question. What do you think or feel about what you just heard? So on the Alpha Course, you'll hear a talk on, you know, Jesus. Uh, or why did Jesus die? And then, okay, you hear that 20-minute talk. But then the whole point of the night is, what do you think or feel about what you just heard? So I think, Richard, I've just had a lot of experience in listening to people who are struggling with faith, who are adjacent to faith or church life, but don't quite know what to do with themselves. And actually, I would say that one of the best ways the church could repair her relationship with those who are adjacent to her but won't quite come in is to listen. But we tend to think that listen is a bridge to compromise. Mm. Um, But I would just say not. And and I'm not saying that um, like from a social or psychological point of view. I'm saying it from my imagination shaped by Jesus, who he he always talked to people on their terms. So the woman at the well or Zacchaeus or Nicodemus. Oh, you're a teacher. And you, you don't get it. Okay, well, then I, I need to speak to you in a certain way. Well, you can only speak to people in a certain way, or you can only meet them on their terms if you first listened to understand their terms and to hear their story. So I would say if, if you know, listeners are, oh, that's a, that's a uh, turn of phrase. If listeners are looking for a key practice listening, um, yes. I, would, I would say is one of them for the church. And authentic listening, not listening out of love to understand somebody and to know their story, not as a tactic to defeat them in an argument. That That's exactly what I wanted to bring up with you because I, I sort of came of age, if you will, in the church and in, in a lot of emphasis on the, on apologetics, um, mm-hmm. you know, having good reasons and arguments for our faith, which again, valid and important thing to have a reasoned answer for why I believe sure. what I believe. But, but often a discussion or asking someone a question seemed to be often more actually a prelude to I'll listen politely and then I'm going to tell yeah. you why you're wrong. 
yeah. right? And 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 defeat you, if you will. Yeah. But I, you know, my own experience, I haven't seen too many people argued into faith. No. You know, well, you well, you got me there, so yeah. tell me what I need to do. But but and the point of your book wasn't how to have these conversations, but what came through to me, Todd, in the way you related these conversations was the compassionate curiosity that you engage people mm-hmm. with. And, can, you know, can I just even lean in a little bit there? Because, you know, you don't, and each of these stories are not, and so I listened and then answered all their questions and there they are doing yeah. really well in a church again. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. I mean, you listened, it seemed like without an agenda, so to speak, other than to genuinely listen and care for them. Mm-hmm. How did you cultivate that approach as opposed to i'm going to listen patiently but then i'm going to tell you why you're wrong or what what's wrong with your way of thinking yeah i think we all just know now that when you had christendom which is marked by pretty much everybody in a culture understanding basic christian lingo and basic christian ideas then that sort of post world war ii apologetic approach could work and it did work Um, you know, I'm, you know, I think I'm older than you, but yeah, we were the same way. Like, you know, remember Josh McDowell evidence that demands Mm -hmm. a verdict and sure, you know, if we could just convince people, if we could get people to say that they believe Jesus rose from the dead, then everything would be okay. You know, based on experience. Now that's probably an unfair summary, but just to make the point that I don't think apologetics are out the door in 2023. It's just that we want people to come to us and say, now, how is it that this ancient manuscript is authoritative? Mm-hmm. Like, what the heck do people thinking 4,000 years or 2,000 years ago have anything to do with us in an age of artificial intelligence and Bluetooth right. and, you know, uh, apps? Right. And, but, see, we want them asking that question out of genuine curiosity mm-hmm. because they've come to think, oh... I am compelled by this person, Jesus, and the best information we have about him are in these ancient texts. Can you please help me understand how these texts work? That's different than us trying to cram an orthodox theory of the inspiration of Scripture into someone's head, you know, uh, through some argumentative sort of way. What we want is for people to, I think we want to nurture in people Um, as we can. I'm not sure we can actually do this, but we can come alongside people with the hope of being a nurturing presence uh, in their genuine questions about faith. Because I'm telling you, anybody who's not in church today, this is uh, statements like this are always oversimplified, but essentially people who, let me put it differently. People who have rejected church today are not looking for a little tidbit of apologetics and then everything would be okay. Right. There's just something else going on. Now, you're probably going to get around to apologetics things. Like, it would be normal for someone to say, you know, I I think I really do want to be a follower of Jesus, but I've never understood the Trinity. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, they're going to ask questions like that. Or how do we know Jesus rose from the dead? Or a virgin birth, how the heck does that work? Right. But again, they're asking it the way somebody who's fallen in love with golf wants to know why does it matter where I put the ball in my stance? Yeah. See, now they want to know because they want to play golf. Mm. And we want to help people get to that place where the apologetic answers we're giving people is answering their actual, real, heartfelt questions. Not Again, not trying to dump something on them. 
Yeah. And, and again, our, with our audience being a lot of pastors and leaders, I, mm-hmm. I know for me and as a pastor for many years, when I would be out with people, you know, let's say meeting somebody, let's say a golf course, or mm-hmm. uh, I remember once getting a haircut and, and I just vividly remember this and, you know, the standard conversation, oh, what do you do? Yeah. And I said, oh, I'm a pastor. And I, I visited, this person took a step, physically took a step back from me, <laughs> uh, started apologizing for whatever language they may have used. Oh, yeah. and, and suddenly oh, I'm gosh, in a category yeah. of, of other, right? Of yes. I don't know what to do with you. Yes. The other thing that can happen, though, too, is sometimes they'll, people can go, oh, they'll, it's a place they want to now unload a bit of their, mm-hmm. oh, the church, how can you support right. an organization like that? Or let me tell you my, my pain story. What, what would you say to, to pastors and leaders listening to this? It's like, yeah, that's what happens. I almost don't want to say to people I'm a pastor because then suddenly yeah. I'm not a normal person anymore and we can't have a normal conversation. Yeah, that's definitely a social dynamic in all the ways you talked about and more. So again, let's just, let's just pretend for a second that your barber um, is the cousin of somebody who was abused by a Catholic priest. Now, I'm not picking mm-hmm. on the Catholics, but mm-hmm. it's just that's in the news all the time. Sure. Well, imagine how that person feels about the church and how that might cause questions about God and the goodness of religion or, you know, is religion actually evil? So again, a close partner to listening is empathy, uh, compassion, the ability to put ourselves in someone else's story. And then I think once people know that we're actually kind of in their story with them and we've seen them and heard them, then I think we, we can say things like, yeah, I get it, but here's my hope. There's also these hundreds of thousands of people around the world right this, in, right this instance trying to heal that very yeah. real human pain. Yeah. So again, you would all want to start with that because it's not an argument. But, right. it, but I'm saying we can get there once we've, mm. once we've really been trusted as somebody who's seen and heard um, our conversation partner. Yeah, and I'm... Actually, I'm sorry, Richard, I want to get just a little deeper in that. Like, for instance, I I might say to that barber, oh, my gosh. How old were you when you found that out? I was 13. I can't imagine what that did to your heart and soul. Can you, do you remember? How did you feel? Um, how, How did your parents talk to you about it? Um, what was it like when you went to sleep at night with that on your, see, I would like just really start getting into that person's real stuff. Yeah. And I might not say nothing. Uh, you know, maybe the next time, two weeks or a month when I get a haircut, maybe we revisit it again. But again, I'm not saying this is some sort of tactic to win an, an, an instantly win an argument. I just think it's the only way we can honestly have these conversations. Like, again, to say to that guy, well, there's nine other priests who didn't do that. Well, that's just no, that's just wrong in every way. No. Or to be what I what I appreciate what you said, though, is is to genuinely enter into that person's pain, which is, I think, honestly, is is scary. It's scary because it's like it's we're going to we may receive either vitriol, understandable vitriol that directed at the 
the institution or people that represent mm -hmm. it, or they uh, a weight of grief or sadness that we aren't sure what to do with. I don't know how, how to hold it. And, and yet I, I just sent hearing you that invitation to just be with that person in the pain, in the disillusionment, in the confusion, and just without having an answer for them. Yeah. Uh, other than empathy and, and I'm curious what you think about this, because sometimes I've felt compelled to say to people, well, I'm sorry that happened to you. I don't feel necessarily authorized, if you will. I'm going to make an apology to you on behalf mm -hmm. of the church. But I can say to you, as best I understand the way of Jesus, that did not represent him well mm -hmm. at all. And and I'm just so and my heart is sad that that's what you experienced. Mm -hmm. Um Anything you would add to that kind of just a way of being with people in this? In that no, I think that's a, that's essentially right, Richard. And you're right. There's a big debate about sort of corporate expressions of individual expressions of corporate guilt. You know, there's a big debate around that. But, sure. But I think we can say something like, and man, as somebody who is in and represents the church, like I am so sorry. Mm -hmm. That's just um, everything, you know, and since we're speaking to a crowd of people who are, um, you know, conversant with spiritual formation. I know for me, I would say, um, man, and man, that's exactly why I've spent the last 35 years working on my own soul. Cause mm -hmm. I just know that various forms of brokenness are in all of us. And if we don't take serious, our holistic formation into Christ, body, soul, spirit, will, mind, social self, heart, um, we're, we're just not going to become the kind of people that we all want to see and dream of. So I, I would get to my, I then would, after hearing his or her story, I would then share some of mine and say, mm. I've had my own stuff I have had to deal with and still have to deal with it. You know, yeah, yeah, I might talk about some of my own spiritual practices mm. that keep me grounded in Christ, et cetera. Mm. That's really good. It's really helpful. Uh, Todd, I wanted to ask you, so, um, Well, let me let me ask it this way. For someone that says, I, I, I don't think I need, and we kind of touched on this earlier. Someone that says, well, I, I don't want to do this if, if I'm interested in Jesus, but don't want to do it in the structure of an, an organized or faith, mm -hmm. uh, faith community. What would you say to someone that said, well, uh, I think, you know, I'm uh, me and my friends are going to just do a Bible study and we'll call that church and that's all mm -hmm. good. Would you have any challenge to that? Would you, would you want to? Um, nudge on that what would you how would you want to respond to that yeah i would think if we could look at that developmentally like if that's just mm -hmm. the best someone can do right now then i probably wouldn't seriously challenge it i i probably would challenge a completely individualistic approach just me and jesus and i would just gently do it by saying well it, you know as you look into jesus more you're going to find out that he was trying to call a people to himself in order to send them into the world to be agents of the kingdom. So I would just encourage people that I think like, okay, but now if it's a, if it's somebody who says, you know, yeah, it's just me and my friends from work or whatever, you know, we're just doing a Bible study for right now. Again, if that's all they can do in their current faith, then I, then I probably would not um, challenge that. I would just see it as developmental, like a phase, a developmental phase. And again, I don't mean to say that, oh, then you graduate to belonging to the institutional church. That isn't my point. Um, my point is that um, the church really does exist in all kinds of forms all around the world. And 
again, in a little village in China, 12 people, 12 friends from work is like a real church. <laughs> so a lot of it, you know, I think gets down to attitude. Like if in saying that they're saying, I'm giving the finger to the institutional church, that's probably not very healthy. <laughs> but again, it, it could be developmental, but it's not very healthy. If what they're saying is, hey, this is what we're doing right now. We find, we feel like we're really growing and love for the Lord and our fellowship of Him, then I think I'd probably be fine with it. What would you say to someone who's, maybe they're saying, I, you know, I am still, I'm in a church and I'm, I'm, um, I see there's some problems in the church I'm in because it's well, any church we'd say that, but, but I have some, I have some concerns about the leadership. I have some concerns about the way that it's done, but I am, I'm, I'm hanging in there. Um, sh- how do I be an agent of, or can I be an agent of, of change or health without becoming a, crit- a critic or, or causing division, you know, what, yeah. what would you say there? Yeah, I think there's categories there to think about, Richard. If, if you're seeing um, the senior pastor or somebody with authority in the church uh, being too handsy uh, with women and telling inappropriate jokes at staff meeting and, and uh, you've seen suggestive emails that somebody has sent, that's one thing. That needs to be reported. Mm-hmm. Um, any sort of abuse should be immediately reported and immediately dealt with. Um, so that the church at a minimum is safe. Now let's say the dispute is more um, political, so to speak. And, you know, we, Mm -hmm. lots of us live through this. Um, Was it, was it a good and loving thing to wear masks to try to help not spread this disease? Or was it giving into a conspiracy theory or giving into a a certain political ideology? That's a different sort of thing. And it's different still about, Hey, we're going to two services should we meet at nine and 11 or, right. or, or eight 45 and 10 30? Uh, so all these things exist on a spectrum. And I would say the, the very best thing we can do is try to show up in those settings ourselves um, as fully devoted follower of Jesus. So, you know, so then you think of Pauline passages, like think more highly of others than you do of yourself or, or never let crass words come out of your mouth to a brother or sister. So I think the first thing is, how do we show up in those settings? Uh, In other words, I think who we are, you know, this was the spiritual genius of Jesus, that it's out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth does speak. So we want to show up to those settings with a certain sort of heart and not the sort of divisive, um, mean, you know, sort of thing. So I think it depends on what you're seeing. Yeah, that's helpful. Can I ask you that, you know, I sit with in our, our ministry, we sit with a lot of pastors and a lot of um, ministry leaders who have mm-hmm. have and do experience their own um, church trauma or pain or abuse. And and sometimes the question is, how much should they share with mm-hmm. whether their congregation or others to, you know, what's what's appropriate, what's helpful? Um, like some, you could make an argument, well, I don't want to disillusion people. So mm-hmm. I don't want to share too much on the other side is like, I don't want to pretend like I I'm above it all or I, that I don't have my own stuff yeah. to deal with. 
Yeah. What What would you say to them, them in terms of sharing their own hurts or wounds yeah. in the church? Well, sadly, I say in the book, again, I've been involved in um, church life my whole life and yeah. probably 40 years supervising churches and pastors. Um, so I, I would say that, um, sadly, the hurt and abuse runs both ways. There are so many pastors right now who feel abused by boards and vestries and parish councils and sort of senior members of the church. Um, you know, I've seen studies as high as seven out of 10 pastors feel significantly sort of whipped on. Wow. Now that, that statistic doesn't make it into the, you know, the greater narrative of pastors doing wrong things to others. And I get why I'm not like whining about that on behalf of pastors. I'm just saying, I know that it runs both ways right now. Um, how a pastor shares that is a really complex bit of wisdom and discernment. Um, meaning the pulpit should never be a place or various meetings of the church should never be a place where we're working out what we should be working out in therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it can be a place where we can empathize with others. Uh, we can tell bits of our stories that people would, would, um, see, Oh, I can relate to him. And I think he can relate to me. Um, so there's a difference between doing what you can do appropriately to be relatable versus sort of inappropriate oversharing that is really just, it's really not even for others. We don't get it. It's for ourselves, And we're just sort of working out our stuff in public. And right. that's, I've never seen that be very healthy. Yeah. I like that. The, the sense of what's the, what's wisdom, what's helpful mm-hmm. is this, who's this really for? Um, and even to maybe have some trusted voices to help us sort out yeah. you know, our own complex motivations, perhaps. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, some of the, some of the more awful stories I tell in the book, they're minimized. Like mm. sometimes I had to minimize, you know, really yucky details because people would recognize the story if I didn't. But mm. other times, again, I didn't want to just, sorry for the crass phrase, but like just barf all over the page. Yeah. I don't know that that helps anybody, but I um, wanted to tell the substantial truth without being salacious. Yeah. Yeah. I think a, a, a question that comes to my mind, and I know you, you speak to it in various ways throughout the book though, Todd, is this is like, it, like you said, you've seen a lot and experienced a lot. You've mm-hmm. got, as Paul talks about, you know, I've got scars. He had physical ones. Mm-hmm. He had, it seems like the ones that probably affected him far more were the emotional ones, especially yeah. at the hands of, of people that name Christ. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, what has kept you not from becoming either bitter or cynical? What's kept your heart soft? What's kept you in it even? Yeah. Well, I've certainly had moments and I've never thought about it on these terms, Richard, but maybe I've had three or four core moments of what I would call either deep frustration or, really profound confusion mm. about church and church stuff. Um, and I, I don't know where I got this. Honestly, I'm not this good. I'm not this godly. I'm not this smart. But I remember one of the times, uh, um, based on some of the stories I told in this book, where 
I, I was so disillusioned. And I felt like I heard the voice of the Lord say to me, okay, Todd, but you got to own your reaction to it. Now, again, mm. I don't know where I got that. Mm. This, the, um, I don't even want to give the date in case someone starts putting two and two together. Mm. But for the first time in my life, I went to therapy. I, I went to seminary. I started seeing, you know, I started understanding spiritual direction and soul care and, and transformation into Christ likeness. This is when I thank God. The, the, I, you know, you can't, I don't know how to rank the greatest gifts of my life, but on one level, certainly becoming friends with Richard Foster and Eugene Peterson and Dallas Willard were enormous gifts to my life. I can't even explain how, what a gifts they were. And in many cases, not even what they taught. It was the quality of their personhood. Yeah. 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 They were all smart guys and wrote great, you know, classic books and all that. But if you, if you had my privilege and were able to be around them personally, um, it's, um, you just got this sense that there's a way of being human in Christ that's unfeigned and it's not religious and like the kindness and generosity that flows from it is like just natural and organic. And I think I saw in them that great simultaneity. And we're back there again. So here I am massively disillusioned. And I wish so much I could tell the stories of why, <laughs> but massively disillusioned. And then here's this kind of crazy making simultaneity, but it's also a hopeful simultaneity that yeah. there is a way to be in Christ that is actually for the good of others that would, I don't know if I got this from Dallas or not, or something I in, in sort of interpreted or put in my own words from Dallas or something like, I, I don't think we want to be the kind of people who gruntingly, you know, don't click on pornography where mm-hmm. everything in us wants to click on it, but we sort of gruntingly don't. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, that's better than nothing. But what, right. what, we, what we want to get to is I would never use another human being in that way. Mm-hmm. I would never mm-hmm. objectify and, hu- and use other men and women in that way because I'm animated by love for them and willing their good. Therefore, I would never use them. And I think that's what that's what I saw in men like that. And of course, then reading Nowen and, you know, all the sort of classics that we all know of in formation, as I started getting this vision for a different sort of Christianity um, that included the church, but kind of wasn't defined by it. Again, as I argue in my book, it was defined by followership of Jesus. In fact, I think my second book, um, what's it called? Uh, Giving Church Another Chance. I think I dedicate to Dallas, Richard, and Eugene with mm. the dedication that they never gave up on church. Mm. Now imagine how frustrated those guys must have been yeah. at seeing the warts of churches their whole life. And they, each of the three of them, well, Eugene was a pastor most of his life, but after he retired, each of the three of them just sat in these unknown churches week after week after week. Yeah. Never left. Yeah. And yeah. nobody knew more about the warts of the church than guys like that. They were brilliant. Mm. And they mm. saw it all over America all the time. And yet they just humbly sat in a church. Why? I don't think it was so much, I mean, as far as I know, they're all in functional churches. But I don't think it was so much a, a statement of, oh, I found a functional church and I'm going to sit here. No, it was sort of a, this is what the people do. 
or maybe my very, very favorite illustration is um, about Tom Wright when he was a canon theologian at Westminster Abbey. Um, you know, if you, I think most of your listeners probably have heard Tom Wright's name, but he's certainly amongst the giants of theologians in our generation. Sure. And he used to pray the daily offices um, with, I, the way I heard somebody put it is somebody once said to Tom, who was sitting in chapel praying morning prayer or something with you know, like seven old ladies, uh, you know, just to use an iconic, you know, definition like that. Sure. And somebody said, you're Tom Wright. What are you doing sitting in morning prayer with seven old ladies? And Tom just said, well, I'm a part of the church. And this is what the church does. So all I'm talking about is like these great giants of the faith who found these really um, uh, non-public, like they weren't flashy about it, these really humble connections to church. Why? Because they had a, a, a previous passionate commitment to Jesus, which made them want to stay connected to the people of Jesus. Yeah. Wow. I love that. I love that. And I hear in that, and I'll just kind of summarize a bit of what I hear you saying too, in terms of what has helped you is one, I hear finding these, whether in person or if, if whatever relational way we can, people that, that we can look to not mm -hmm. as, as we would to Jesus, but as, as a reliable guide or mentor. But I also hear attending to your own, uh, your own pain, attending through yeah. where it, in therapy and direction and mm -hmm. doing, doing your own work as we often yeah. like to say. And so I, I know our time is kind of running, running out here, but I, I wanted to ask this because with all that's going on and you've seen so much, you've been doing it a really long time. How do, do you, how do you feel about the future of the church, particularly in the West, let's say mm -hmm. in the U S say, what, are, as you look ahead, what do you see that makes you either hopeful or, maybe less hopeful or what do you, mm -hmm. what do you see and how do you feel about the church going forward? Yeah. Um, I feel completely confident and here's why, um, you know, church history has these major eras attached to it. Like think of pre-Constantine and then Constantine and then uh, maybe the middle ages. And I'm not a historian here, so nobody please judge me, <laughs> but you know, kind of the middle ages and then the period of the reformation, like no one could have saw Constantinianism coming. Right. And no one could have saw all the implications of the middle ages and no one could have saw the implications of the reformation. And I just think we're living in one of those moments right now where there are tectonic shifts happening in and around the church. But here's my favorite, one of my favorite Willardisms. The kingdom of God is never at risk. Put your life in the kingdom or John 15, derive your life as a branch from the vine and you will always be saved. And that's not an individualistic statement. That's a statement for the whole church. The church is not going anywhere. She might look a lot different 100 years from now, the way she expresses herself. Many of the 18th and 19th century denominations that we've known about might not exist in the forms they did. But the church itself, the people of God, it's not going anywhere. Um, it, it's because it's God's intention. And, and again, back to that beautiful Greek term, telos, it's God's intention for his people is going to come to pass. It is not in doubt. Um, yeah. How that how that church organizes herself and all that, the ups and downs she goes through. Yeah. There's lots of doubts about that, but no doubt about God's ultimate purpose for his children. 
And then I think, Richard, this gets down to, for each of us, whether we're deeply in the church, like me, I'm a bishop for crying out loud, <laughs> or if you're feeling like you said, I just don't know about church or those who have been hurt. In any case, no matter where we might be on that spectrum, um, I just want to say always to myself, I want to put myself in Jesus. And in doing that, I am by definition putting myself in a people, a people who are beautiful and troubled and servant-hearted and selfish and all kinds of stuff. But that's not what's definitive. For me, the person and work of Christ is definitive. And I put myself in him and thereby I'm always putting myself in his people. What a beautiful statement. Thank you. Thank you for that. And Todd, thank you for the, the gift of this book. I, what I love so much about it is it's one, it, it's not defensive. It doesn't defend things that, that shouldn't be defended. And yet it mm-hmm. continues to point us to Jesus, his life, his example, his work and his ways. And it invites people to, whether it's to discover or rediscover, to deepen and uh, embrace a life in Christ. And as you said, as we do that, we will find ourselves as part of a people. And so thank you for this. And thank you for the conversation today. Thank you for the, the hope that you are uh, offering and reminding us of in Christ. So we're grateful. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Richard. I uh, love you guys. Love the work you guys all do. It's great to be with you. Thanks so much for listening to today's conversation. We hope it's been helpful to you. And we'd love to serve you in any way we can at Wellspring. For more information about who we are and what we do, please go to wellspringca.org or look us up on Facebook. Just search under Wellspring. Until next time, grace and peace.